1: as you know, every now and then we, uh, we um, really jump into history. We have July 4th coming up. But July 4th was the culmination of events that had been occurring for more than a uh, decade before, July 4th, 1776. And as you know, I've been one of the leading proponents of the Articles of, of the Article 5 and the uh, Convention of States, where the states through their legislatures, delegates would meet to review what's taking place in the federal government and propose changes to address the uh, rewriting of the Constitution by the Supreme Court and other instrumentalities of the federal government. Remember, the states created the federal government, and the federal government had certain specific and limited responsibilities, but that's not the case anymore. And so the, uh, the framers of the Constitution and the ratifiers They decided that there would be a provision in our Constitution under Article 5 where the Constitution could be amended should Congress and the other elements of the federal government become oppressive, the word that George Mason used. And in many ways they have become oppressive. They have become much stronger, much broader than ever intended as a result of the importation of this ideology called progressivism, which is statism. It is an alien ideology. It is incompatible with a constitutional republic. And it is the the basis, the, the reason for the existence of the modern Democrat Party and most of the modern media and much of academia. The importation of an ideology that is hostile to our founding principles. So what do we do about that? Well, the first thing we do is talk a little bit about our history that is rarely taught. And so I want to go back, back even before 1776. The first time the disparate colonies decided to get together in a meeting, in a conference, in a Congress, if you will, was called the Albany Congress. And it took place in 1754. The Albany Congress. And uh, we're going to walk through this this hour, and I hope you'll... uh, You'll stay with us and even call the kids around if you can. And they came up with the Albany Plan. And just listen to the next three and a half minutes, if you will, which explains the Albany Congress and the Albany Plan. Cut 17, go.
2: One important element that led to the war for independence was a growing sense of unity amongst the 13 colonies. In the decades prior to the Revolutionary War, A series of meetings and agreements between colonial leaders laid the foundation for a framework that led to American independence. The Albany Plan of Union was a 1754 proposal aimed at building a union of the colonies under a single government. The French and Indian War had just begun, and many argued that the Albany Union was justified to coordinate a defense against the alliance of French and Indian forces threatening the American colonies. The union was proposed by Benjamin Franklin, and it marked the first time in the 1700s that colonial representatives met to discuss a plan for creating a formal union. Eleven colonies sent delegates, with Georgia and Delaware opting not to attend. The delegates agreed to Franklin's proposal, and copies of the Albany Plan were sent to colonial assemblies and the British Board of Trade in London. The plan was rejected by colonial leaders and the British government, who, weary of their colony's growing independent drive, told them to concentrate on raising armies and constructing forts to defend their territory. Although the Albany Plan of Union did not go into effect, many of Franklin's ideas were revived and later implemented into the Articles of Confederation and even the U.S. Constitution. Once the French and Indian War concluded, the relationship between Britain and its colonies quickly soured. The Albany Plan had included a system in which the American colonies could have funded the war through a series of taxes, but Parliament instead chose to fund the war through the British Treasury. At the conclusion of the conflict, the British intended to raise the funds from the colonies through a series of direct taxation. Americans resented the efforts by King George III and Parliament to exert authority over the colonies. Committees of correspondence were organized by colonial leaders and they coordinated resistance to British policies enforcing colonial boycotts against british goods and informing one another of british abuses of power in each american colony the intricate network of communication went even further in creating a partnership and camaraderie that stretched from georgia to massachusetts the so we have course, here
1: that's all right. we have here in the albany congress then the real first effort to organize the colonies against the abuses of the British. There's a reason I'm going through all this. The key is, so we get our history out there, but there's another reason, as you'll understand, when we're done with this. Were you ever taught about the Albany Congress and the Albany Plan of Union and the great Benjamin Franklin's role? Now, subsequent to the Albany Congress, the British become even more oppressive and tyrannical as applies to the colonies. And 11 and a half years later, 1765, there was the Stamp Act Congress. Have you ever heard of the Stamp Act Congress? And they met in the Federal Hall building in New York City. And they were objecting to the oppressive taxes and the Stamp Act which was issued by the British Parliament on March 1765. And the Stamp Act was a tax that was placed on every document, every newspaper, every pamphlet, every poem, anything that was written, anything on paper. It had to have an official British stamp mark on it. And the colonists rose up against it. And they began boycotting all British goods. And so they decided to have a meeting called the Stamp Act Congress. Went from uh, October 7 to October 25, uh, twenty-seven representatives of the nine of the 13 colonies were sent Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia were prevented from attending because their governors refused. These were governors appointed by the British uh, to convene the assemblies to elect the delegates. New Hampshire didn't attend, but it approved the resolutions once the Congress was over. And this Stamp Act Congress approved 13 resolutions in what was called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Now, keep something in mind. When this occurred, there was no intention to separate from Britain. This was not an independence movement. This was a grievance movement, and the demand of that certain basic rights be instituted. And this is where the phrase began, no taxation without representation. America was 3,000 miles away from Britain, and there was no representation in the House of Commons. So the Stamp Act Congress declared the Stamp Act duties impracticable and effectively null and void. So they petitioned the crown to withdraw them. And the king said, uh, no, we're not going to withdraw them. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't be meeting. That's an illegal assembly. Now, the Stamp Act was eventually repealed. It was eventually repealed because the British merchants rose up because the boycott by the American colonies was uh, very, very painful. And so the Stamp Act was eventually withdrawn. That is the second official Congress, if you will, of the colonies. There was a third meeting of the colonies fact, it was called the First Continental Congress. Now, the First Continental Congress would meet about 10 years later.
3: Cut 18, go. Boston, August 10th, 1774. John Adams is donning a new suit. And if he's not careful, the British will bury him in it. The Patriot leader is heading for a secret meeting in Philadelphia that will change the course of history and could cost him his life. Adams is one of four men representing Massachusetts at the First Continental Congress, an unprecedented and, as far as the king is concerned, illegal meeting of delegates from up and down the colonies. Fifty-five delegates of America's best and brightest who gathered to come up with a unified strategy to oppose Britain's increasing encroachment on their liberties. If the king had his way, they would all hang for treason.
4: That illustrates how strongly they felt that they must take steps to remove themselves from the, what they saw as the arbitrary power of
3: the British crown. Britain has already suspended Massachusetts Constitution and imposed martial law there. The other colonies fear that it's only a matter of time before they all meet the same fate. Even though these colonies have different economic interests, they have different political histories, they have different populations, they recognize that in our relationship with Britain, we have much in common.
4: Not all of these people have met each other. Most have heard about each other. Now they're eager to meet each other, see what's going to happen. People know that there's going to be moderates and not-so-moderates, and
3: there's already kind of little factions forming. Joining John Adams from Massachusetts is another radical, 37-year-old John Hancock, a wealthy Boston merchant who has been using his considerable fortune to fuel the cause. Pennsylvania has sent a moderate lawyer, John Dickinson, 42, whose widely read essays back in the 60s helped launch the anti-tax movement. From Virginia comes Patrick Henry, the volatile young orator whose Virginia Resolves helped stamp out the Stamp Act. And also from Virginia, a wealthy 42-year-old planter and veteran of the Seven Years' War, George Washington.
4: One of the problems is they all thought of themselves as Pennsylvanians, Rhode Islanders, South Carolinians, much more than they thought of themselves as Americans. Patrick Henry really just electrifies everyone when he says, I am no longer a Virginian, I am now an American. John Adams says the trick is to get 13 clocks to strike all at the same time,
3: 13 ships to sail in the same formation. Uh, It's not easy. Thirteen conspirators against the crown. Finally, after two months of arguing and pontificating, the Congress adjourns with a unified message for England. Until colonial rights are restored, all 13 colonies will halt all trade with Great Britain. Local militias are to arm and stand in readiness. As one might expect, kings don't do well with ultimatums. No one tells the king of England what to do. The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph. I do not wish to come to severe measures, but we must not retreat. I trust they will come to submit. He makes the assumption that a simple show of force, of military might, will be enough to scare the rebels back to their senses. Not likely. Certainly not in Boston.
1: Interesting. So the uh the Albany Congress. We have the Stamp Act Congress. We have the First Continental Congress, and you can see what is about to occur. And shortly thereafter, quickly convened, is the Second Continental Congress. And when we return, we'll discuss that. We'll be right back.
5: Mark in.
1: And then all hell breaks loose. The Revolutionary War effectively began between Britain and the American colonies in 1775. And so delegates from all 13 colonies meet in Philadelphia to plot the course of war and soon independence. The Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775, as explains Khan Academy, shortly after the war with British had begun. The Congress appointed George Washington as the commander of the Continental Army. On July 4, 1776, the Congress issued the Declaration of Independence, which for the first time asserted the colony's intention to be fully independent. They would establish itself as the central governing authority under the Articles of Confederation, and they remained in force until 1788. Specifically, in April 1775 at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts, the war between Britain and its North American colonies broke out. And in order to direct the war effort, begin debating the contours of the system of government that would emerge to replace British rule, delegates from all 13 colonies convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775. Now, the most pressing order of business was the war effort, it was not unified. Nor were there many leaders who could potentially command the disparate armed forces, which at this point were mostly composed of various local militias. In June, the delegates voted to raise an army through conscription and appointed George Washington to command the new Continental Army. There were two main factions represented at this Congress. The so-called Conservatives, headed by John Jay of New York and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and the Radicals, led by John Adams of Massachusetts And Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. When we return after the break, we will complete our very brief journey through early American history. I want to tip our hat at the Khan Academy, and I'll be right back.
0: Right versus left is. Right versus wrong. Coal market 877-381-3811. In April seventeen
1: seventy-five, at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts, war between Britain and the North American colonies broke out. The first Continental Congress had already disbanded. Their efforts to sue for peace were rejected. In order to direct the war effort and begin debating the contours of the system of government that would emerge to replace British rule, delegates from all 13 colonies convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1775. The most pressing order of business was the war effort. It was not unified, nor were there many leaders who could potentially command the disparate armed forces which at this point were mostly composed of various local militias. They were up against the most powerful military force on the face of the earth. In June, the delegates voted to raise an army through conscription, and they appointed George Washington to command the new Continental Army. They knew full well that if they lost, they would all hang. There were two main factions represented in the Congress, the conservatives, headed by John Jay of New York and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, and the so-called radicals, led by John Adams of Massachusetts and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. Now, the so-called conservatives still believed that reconciliation with British was possible, and on July 5th, the Congress authorized the Olive Branch Petition. That's July 5th. 1775. That represented one final attempt at negotiation and affirmed the colony's loyalty to the crown. But the following day, the Congress issued the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, which explained and justified the Thirteen Colonies' decision to go to war. This had the effect of invalidating the Alla Branch Petition which the British had already summarily rejected. Though the ideas of the Conservatives continued to be debated in the Congress, the battles at Lexington and Concord and the subsequent siege of Boston pushed many of the delegates into the so-called radical camp. The Second Continental Congress assumed the normal functions of a government, appointing ambassadors, issuing paper currency, raising the Continental Army through conscription, and appointing generals to lead the army the powers of the Congress were still very limited. didn't have the authority to raise taxes, nor did it have the ability to regulate commerce. On July 4, 1776, (coughs) that's our Independence Day, the Congress took a momentous step and issued the Declaration of Independence. Although the delegates were partly motivated by the necessity of securing foreign allies, particularly the French to assist with the war effort against Britain. Many of them, most of them, also understood that the time for negotiations was over. Nothing short of full independence would suffice. Thomas Jefferson composed the first draft of the Declaration, which was then edited by by the other delegates, to produce the final version that was approved on July 4th. As the delegates sought to direct the war effort, they were also looking ahead to the end of the war and the government that would replace British rule. That said, the war went on for eight and a half years. What should this government look like? What would be its obligations to its citizens and so forth? After months of fierce debate, on November 15, 1777 the Congress adopted the Articles of Confederation which established a unicameral legislature that served as the fledgling nation's governing authority until 1788 when it was eventually replaced in 1789 with a new Constitution. The Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, effectively transformed a collection of disparate colonies into a country ...under a functioning central government... ...the Articles of Confederation... ...and eventually... ...the Constitution... ...of the United States. I barely really... ...touched the tip of the iceberg here. If you want to really go back... ...you would look at 1651... ...the Navigation Acts... ...1733... ...the Molasses Acts... ...1754... ...we talked about the Albany Congress... 1763 the Proclamation of 1763, 1764 the Sugar Act, 1764 the Currency Act, 1765 we talked about the Stamp Act, and then the Stamp Act Congress, 1766 the Declaratory Act, these are Acts of Britain, 1767 the Townshend Revenue Act, 1770 the Boston Massacre, 1773, the Tea Act, 1773, the Boston Tea Party, 1774, the Intolerable Acts, 1774, the First Continental Congress, as we've just talked about, 1775, the Second Continental Congress, 1776, the formal Declaration of Independence by the Second Continental Congress. This is your history. Now, step back and look at what's taking place in this country today. The nature of our government is utterly and completely unmoored from that history. The size of the government I say the government, I mean the federal government, the central government, the power of the government, the ubiquitous nature of the government. The endless series of taxes, regulations, impositions by the federal government. This federal government that was created by the states with limited authority, separation of powers, balance of powers, specific powers, and all other authority left to individuals and all other governing power left of the states. What has happened, and I touched on it early on, and I've talked about it before, and I've written about it, in rediscovering Americanism and the tyranny of progressivism, is a poison has been let loose into the body politic. Our founding fathers reject everything ...everything associated with the philosophy that undergirds progressivism. Hegelism. Hegel was a German philosopher. A Prussian, if you will. And despite all his writings and all his talk about the people and so forth... ...he essentially, when you want to really summarize it... ...was backing the the German Empire... Marx picked up on Hegelism, modified it, added materialism to it. Marxism, Hegelism, and other isms brought forth in the United States this so-called progressive movement, self-named progressivism, which of course is regressivism. In the earliest of the progressive intellectuals, the 1850s and the 1860s and and beyond, attacked the Declaration of Independence. The history I just gave you leading up to the Declaration of Independence, they completely and utterly reject it. They write about it. They explain how and why they reject it, which is why I included it in my book. We had a president of the United States and Woodrow Wilson who was one of the leading so-called progressive intellectuals 30 years before he was elected president. And you had many, John Dewey and so forth who were enormously influential. Influential with another president by the name of Theodore Roosevelt who obviously preceded Woodrow Wilson, a Republican. And these men... These ideologues, these intellectuals, spent their time academically and politically trying to make the case for rejecting the basic principles that are set forth in the Declaration of Independence. They basically dismissed the Declaration and all the history I just gave you and the history that followed that created our Constitution. They reject it. As a historical throwback. That was all very important for the time, but the times have changed. Jefferson said in a letter responding to a critic, a critic who said to Jefferson, yeah well you know you wrote this Declaration of Independence, you really didn't have many new ideas in there, and Jefferson said the point wasn't to create new ideas, the point was to embrace the right ideas. And he says in his letter that he looked to Aristotle and Cicero and Sidney and Locke and many others. And so did his contemporaries at the time. Do the progressives today look at Aristotle, Cicero, Sidney and Locke? No. No. They look to Marx and Hegel. This, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the reasons Bernie Sanders will not debate me on any of my media platforms, on radio, on Levin TV, on the Fox News channel. He won't debate me because I know what he knows. He knows what I know. And we both know if we would sit down for an hour and have a discussion, I would thoroughly and completely expose him. This is why the 28-year-old young lady who was just elected the so-called Socialist Democrat in New York will not come on this show because she knows that I know what she knows and she knows what I know and she doesn't want to have a discussion with me. She'd rather go on MSNBC and CNN. Now, where am I going with all this? We had a few calls last night, as I do often, asking, Mark, where do we go with this? Where are we headed? How do we save our republic? And I wrote an entire book on this called The Liberty Amendments. Remember the Albany Congress and the Stamp Act Congress and the First Continental Congress and the Second Continental Congress? How the colonies and then the states would meet would meet to discuss what was taking place in the country, how to make it better. Well, those geniuses who met in Philadelphia after the Revolutionary War to replace the Articles of Confederation with an actual constitution, they put a provision in their constitution under Article 5. That provides two ways to amend the constitution. One, through Congress two-thirds of both houses proposing amendments to the states. Three-fourths of the states are now 38 states having to ratify. And two days before the end of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, George Mason stood up, a delegate from Virginia, genius, brilliant, and he said, if Congress shall turn oppressive, the only way To reform what's taking place is through violence. We must give the people the power to address a tyrannical Congress, or in this case, a tyrannical federal government. And they set forth the process in the Constitution. And the legitimate constitutional way is through the state legislatures. 34 state legislatures. Coming up with Virtually identical resolutions when it comes to the issues they want to discuss. Calling for a meeting, a convention of the states. Where they meet, they discuss what they want to do to get the original Constitution back, which has been rewritten by the Politburo that we now call the Supreme Court. Which still would require the same ratification process. 38 states, three-fourths of the state legislatures, either either by the legislatures or convention. So there's no potential whatsoever for a runaway convention since the states are in charge from beginning to end. This is how you address what's taking place in this country. It's certainly not going to happen tomorrow. Certainly not going to happen next year. But if it doesn't happen, I'm telling you in 50 years, your children will not recognize this country. I'll be right back. Mark
5: Lovin.
1: You know by now that you and your entire family, credit history is everything, can fall victim to identity theft at any moment. Every time you use your credit card or even open an email, techno thieves are after you. So have you taken measures yet to protect your most valuable asset, your identity? Don't wait. Let my ID care start protecting you today. Identity theft is serious, complicated stuff. You read about it every day. How these hackers break into corporate accounts and databases, banks, financial institutions, retail stores, government accounts, the OPM, even the Pentagon and the White House. Well, none of them are protecting you. You have to take this on yourself and luckily we have a wonderful wonderful company that can do that and help you so for instance have you heard of synthetic id theft it's when thieves take pieces of personal information from various people and create a fake persona but my id care covers you for even this sophisticated kind of scam no one can protect you 100% but my id care offers best in class protection best in class and they give you a 100% identity recovery guarantee if you do fall victim or your money back. Let my ID Care take care of you just like they do me and my family. Credit freezes alone won't protect you from all nine types of identity theft, but my ID Care will. Learn more and get 15% off at MyIDCare.com slash mark promo code mark. That's a mouthful. Let me repeat it. MyIDCare.com slash mark promo code mark. One more, myidcare.com slash mark, promo code mark. So when you and I say we want a constitutionalist on the Supreme Court and the progressives scream and bark and burp and say you'll move the court to the right, what does that mean you'll move the court to the right? We are constitutionalists. Conservatism, constitutional. it's not right, it's not left. A constitutionalist is somebody who wants, as best as possible, to make sure the Constitution is faithfully interpreted interpreted and upheld. Why is that a right or left thing? What else is a judge or justice supposed to do? Isn't that their obligation? You and I are trying to defend an institution against a foreign ideology imported into this country that is trying to promote its ideology. And devour our Constitution and our Constitutional Republic. We are defending the institution. They are attacking the institution. And we are defending the institution because we understand the principles that undergird these institutions liberty, individualism, private property rights, faith. I'll be right back. Caller one is an excellent question, so let's jump right in, and I will project from there. Dan, Owlshead, New York, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, sir?
0: I'm fine. How are you?
1: Very well. What is your question, sir?
0: I, I was listening. I, I was. I'm interested in Hegel, and I'd like to know why you think that Hegel is a progenitor of progressivism.
1: It's actually a progenitor first of Marxism, and I'm Marx sorry? certainly thought. He's actually a progenitor first of Marxism, and Marx himself thought so. And now I will explain it to you. He believed in this argument, of course, of historical progress, of historical dialecticism. And I'm telling this to the American people here. It's not just for you. That is, some societies, he argued, for human development or the lack thereof, They change from one historical period to the next. So some societies are stuck in their own history. Others progress over time, his argument. But the trajectory of history generally is toward the ideal state. The method of individual and societal progress involves a dialectic process. Some reasoned, some unconscious. This is what he argued. I'm reading from my own book. In which opposites are in constant state of conflict, synthesizing into ever higher truths, which eventually lead to a fully developed state, which he called the final end. And you can see some Darwinism in this, too. So that which appears irrational in a state will eventually be brought into harmony, he argues. And this, contended Hegel, is the fact of human history and evolution. And the state is ultimately the external force as opposed to the in, ex, uh, uh, eternal force through which the individual finds his actualization, that's his word, liberty, happiness, and fulfillment through the state. As such, the individual is not consumed with his own existence in private affairs, what he called subjective thought. Instead, by way of the state, the individual sees beyond self and becomes a citizen of the state, whose reality is part of a universalized whole and collective life through which the individual learns what is reasonable, that is, objective thought. This is the final end sought by the individual and the state, the consciousness of mind and freedom. In this way, the individual serves and benefits from the state and vice versa. That which came before effectively vanishes, therefore man progressively moves away from the state of nature to the final end through reason. And he was very dismissive of the American Declaration of Natural Rights, thought that was all hokum, all uh, mythology. He wrote in his book, The Elements of Philosophy of Right in 1820, about the ideal state. Here's what he says. The state is the realized ethical idea or ethical spirit. It is the will which manifests itself, makes itself clear and visible, substantiates itself it is the will which thinks and knows I'm quoting the state finds an ethical custom its direct and unreflected existence and its indirect and reflected existence in the self-consciousness of the individual and in his knowledge and activity in other words the individual and the state become one and the same self-consciousness in the form of social disposition has its substantive freedom in the state as the essence, purpose, and product of its activity. The state, which is the realized substantive will, having its reality in the particular self-consciousness raised to the plane of the universal, is absolutely rational. This substantive unity is its own motive and absolute end. In this end, freedom attains its highest right. This end has the highest right over the individual, whose highest duty, in turn, is to be a member of the state. And as I say, therefore the individual is again subservient to the state, for the same state can never attain the lofty utopian heights devised by Hegel, and the individual will never be adequate to the cause. Meanwhile, the individual's independence and free will are absorbed by the state in the name of community and general welfare. Indeed, the unity of the so-called actualized individual with the ideal state requires the abandonment of the past, the abandonment of the Declaration. Hegel found no relevance at all in the origin and founding principles of a nation except to understand the next step in the historical process and the synthesizing that comes from dialecticism. In fact, Hegel took a direct shot at the notion of eternal natural law and rights that are in our Declaration as well as the social contract which of course are the bases of America's founding and the Declaration of Independence. He insisted that the only legitimate form of thought involves the application of the science of the state. This is a constant theme, folks, among American progressives. The diminution of the individual, the rejection of America's heritage. Hegel went on. He said, rationality viewed abstractly consists in the thorough unity of universality and individuality. Taken concretely and from the standpoint of the content, it is the unity of objective freedom with the subjective freedom, of the general substantive will with the individual's conscience. So the subjective freedom is the individual's freedom. the objective freedom is the freedom of the state. They must be become one. And he goes on, and I'm not trying to go into the weeds here, but it's really uh, I think the word I would use is "obtuse. And in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, by Karl Popper, of whom I am a huge fan, he was an Austrian-British philosopher and a big critic of Hegel. And he exposed, among others, Hegel's illogic. He says, Hegel's intention is to operate freely with all contradictions, because his point is that Hegel's philosophy is you've got these, these two forces going at each other, and then, and then a more perfect force is created, and that just keeps going on and on and on until you have the, the final stage the final solution and Marx as you can see picked up on that applied it to historic materialism and applied much of Hegelism he altered it but was hugely influenced by it early in his life Marx said no 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 no, forget about Hegel and then later in his life he said actually Hegel was right on in a number of things and so uh, Popper says All things are contradictory in themselves, says Hegel. He insists in order to defend a position which means the end, not only of all science, but of all rational argument. In other words, we get to this this final solution. And as Popper points out, there is no final solution. And the reason why he wishes to admit contradictions is that he wants to stop rational argument. And with it, scientific and intellectual progress. In other words, if your philosophy is, look, we're always going to have opposites fighting with each other and they get to a more perfect position and then there's opposites that fight over that position and so forth and so on. Popper's point is, well, then you never have right and wrong. <laughs> you never have uh, good and evil. It's just a process. And so uh, it goes on. I can get into this more deeply, but I probably lost half the audience already. Any questions, Dan?
0: But we'll- you agree, though, that Hegel talks about uh, spirit, that the uh, spirit is the uh, evolution of freedom, where he says in the philosophy of history that first one was free, then some were free, then all will be free?
1: Well, I guess. I mean, but that, but you can't be free through the state.
0: I don't think Mark was
1: concerned about freedom. And Hegel, Hegel was not concerned about freedom. Hegel was really writing no. a—let uh, me finish—was writing a defense of the, uh, of the monarchy, of the what? German monarchy, and he was loved by the German monarchy. This, these were excuses, in my view, and in Popper's view and the view of many other people. And no, he, was, he uses words like spirit and in, in individuality, uh, but always it is the state in the end you must you must collude with or combine with the state in order to realize your full as he would say individual actualization you don't agree with that do you i'd have to think about it better think hard because but that's I, I, the, uh, the that that is the prescription for tyranny sir
0: i think the real progenitor of, of progressivism uh, is is the abandonment of of uh, religion
1: well, sorry, I, I'm telling you what the... Listen, I didn't make this up. The progressive intellectuals who would follow Hegel and Marx pointed to Hegel and Marx. Okay. Uh, well, and where does religion come in with Hegel? When the final state, the, the, uh, the final act, doesn't even involve a religion. It involves the state.
0: You have people like uh, David Rush, Friedrich Strauss, Feuerbach. I don't care
1: about him. I'm asking, we were talking about Hegel.
0: This, but this is the point here. He, Hegel is not living in, uh, in isolation. He's living at a time of tremendous uh, change. Hegel's he's
1: living is- at a time of tremendous change, which he rejects. He's defending the monarchy.
0: No. That's the whole point. Uh, no, I wouldn't say he's necessarily defending the monarchy.
1: Well they they adored him. They embraced him. Well, if you don't believe that Hegel was defending the monarchy, then you don't understand Hegel. All right, my friend. I do appreciate your call. Let's go to Joe Lyons, George of the great WTKS. Go.
5: Go uh, ahead, hello. Joe.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. I would like to know what
0: is wrong with populism. The reason I asked this question is I was listening to another radio host who happens to...
1: Yeah, you don't need to mention the host, but what's wrong with populism? Go ahead.
0: I was just asking what is wrong with it with, like, your opinion,
1: because when I actually heard last week about about your, uh, excuse about... Uh, Alright, let, let me address populism. Thank you for your call, my friend. If you read the Constitution, there's no populism in the Constitution. None whatsoever. Which article, which section, which clause promotes populism? The founders of this country and the framers of the Constitution and the ratifiers of the Constitution feared pure democracy. The courts don't reflect pure democracy. The Presidency doesn't reflect pure democracy. There's an electoral college. The Senate doesn't reflect pure democracy. And even in the case of the House, there's two-year limits, and then you've got to keep, re- keep running. No plebiscites, no referendum, nothing. Uh, John Adams said it best. He said if the people could vote, they'd vote to take the property from those who earned it. You look at the Declaration of Independence, they talk about unalienable rights. Unalienable rights are unalienable rights. That has nothing to do with democracy or populism. There's another brilliant man that I've quoted in the past. His name was, or is, Isaiah Berlin. He's passed away since. Brilliant man. And uh, we've talked about him before, and we will in the future. And he talked about liberty. Positive liberty, negative liberty. And I don't want to get too heavy, but... He goes into these ideas of populism, nationalism, constitutionalism, and so forth. And uh, he makes the point that liberty is not necessarily defended by any form of government. That any form of government is capable of tyranny. I use this example on your unalienable rights. Are your unalienable rights subject to plebiscites? Does your neighbor or do your neighbors, do a collective of people by the motion of voting get to deny you any of your unalienable rights? Your God-given unalienable rights? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, property? Of course not. The purpose of the Constitution is to, is to create the governing mechanism through which the principles in the Declaration of Independence are manifested. They didn't create a populist government. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was running in the Progressive Party, nicknamed the Bull Moose Party, And you can Google this. Among the long list of things that he supported was national plebiscites. He was a progressive and a populist, and that's part of the problem. You had uh, parties in the mid to late 1860s calling themselves the People's Party. Well, I don't support the People's Party. I don't even know what that means. We are a republic. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. We're not a populist government. There's something called the Burkean trusteeship. I remember reading this when I was like 12 or 13 years old. I haven't read it since, but you can Google it. Now, what's the Burkean trusteeship? Well, obviously, it's something Edmund Burke had penned. Another great man, man born in Ireland, immigrated to uh, Britain, became one of the most brilliant members of Parliament and writers of his time. He supported the American Revolution and rejected the French Revolution. The French Revolution was a populist revolution. And you had ten years of terror. It was horrific. The American Revolution was not a populist revolution. It was a Republican revolution. With checks and balances, with separation of power and so forth and so on. The American people, excuse me, the American founders feared the mob... And the monarchy. The mob and the monarchy. But still the will of the people needed to be expressed. And so how do you do that? The will of the people will be expressed through a process. People get to vote for president, but there's a protection in there, the electoral college. People get to vote for Congress. Two bodies in Congress vote for one directly, at least originally, the way the Senate was set up. And then the Senate would represent the states. And we do not elect judges. And they set this system up. Now you will hear the, the autocrats, the progressives, the uh, the progeny of, of Hegel and Marx, go on and on and on about the people, the general welfare, um, uh, community and so forth and so on. And yet the only way they... They can meet their fanciful objectives is through the iron fist of a centralized state, which is why they hate the Constitution and reject the Declaration. I'll be right back.
5: Mark in
1: This is why I wrote Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressiveness. They are incompatible, absolutely incompatible, and we collectively need to understand the force that we're up against. This is why I spent the first hour of the program very briefly going over the early parts of American history, looking at what's going on today, the battle over the Supreme Court, the rejection of the Declaration of the Constitution by people so-called progressives, I call them status who pretend to care about the Constitution. It's a very short segment, unfortunately, but Hegel wrote other things. And he lived from 1770 to 1831, if you're curious. He specifically rejected the Declaration of Independence, the way that Obama used to leave out crucial phrases of the Declaration of Independence, the way that Woodrow Wilson On a July 4th, during the course of his presidency, he went to Independence Hall, stood out front of Independence Hall, and essentially eviscerated the Declaration of Independence. You cannot be a so-called progressive and believe in natural law and the law of nature and unalienable rights of the individual. You cannot. You believe in government. You believe in taking things from some people and giving it to other people. You believe that all roads of justice and equality run through an all-powerful central government managed by so-called elites. I'll be right back. The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. Is there any place that teaches young adults to seek what is true, beautiful, and good, to even understand what those things mean? How about understanding the principle that all men are created equal or why America is the world's freest nation? You know, there's a place where students study these things. It's called Hillsdale College. And by putting in the work to understand essential truths, Students graduate ready to lead in any field of their choosing. As Vice President Prentz said at commencement this year, Hillsdale students learn not what to do, but what to be. Hillsdale also offers its stellar education to you through the free monthly subscription to Imprimus and in free online courses like Constitution 101. The fact is, every American can learn like a Hillsdale student from the same professors. Most remarkably of all, Hillsdale provides this service to our nation without taking a single penny of taxpayer money, state, local, federal, not one penny. I strongly encourage you to learn how Hillsdale can serve you at a website just for you, my beloved audience. LevinforHillsdale.com, LevinforHillsdale.com, that's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. If you're enjoying today's show and the sort of things that I'm talking about, go to Hillsdale, that is com. Check it out Well, you folks are very, very interested In these subjects tonight And I'm very impressed and pleased But I shouldn't be surprised And I'm really not Because you're the smartest of the smartest So let's go on Because this guy Hegel is, is very, very crucial To understanding Kamala Harris And Bernie Sanders And Chuck Schumer And today's media Half of them don't even understand that they're Hegelians but Bernie Sanders does because he's a communist he gets it now this philosophy so called progressivism as I say this is the progeny of, of Hegel and Marx among others Hegel wrote concerning a constitution this is a direct attack on us remember when he lived 1770 to 1831. As concerning reason itself, there has in modern times been an endless babble, which has in Germany been more insipid than anywhere else. Remember remember what I said. Hegel was essentially, despite all the, his writings and arguments and thinking and so forth and so on, he was effectively defending uh, the dictatorship in Germany. So he rejected constitutionalism just as today's left does. With us there are those who have persuaded themselves that it is best even at the very threshold of government to understand before all other things what a constitution is. And they think that they have furnished invincible proof that religion and piety should be the basis of all their shallowness. It is small wonder if this pratting has made for reasonable mortals the words reason, illumination, right, Constitution, liberty, mere empty sounds, and men should have become ashamed to talk about political constitutions. At least as one effect of this superfluidity, we may hope to see the conviction become general that a philosophic acquaintance with such topics cannot proceed from mere reasons, ends, grounds, and utilities, much less from feeling, love, and inspiration, but only out of the conception. It will be a fortunate thing, too, if those who maintain the divine to be inconceivable and an acquaintance with the truth to be wasted effort were henceforth to refrain from breaking in upon the argument I'll explain in a second what of undigested rhetoric and edification they manufacture out of those feelings can at least lay no claim to philosophic notice so he's denouncing the declaration the notion of natural law the notion of a uh, Of a God conferring unalienable rights, the Creator, on a people, and the idiocy, he would argue, of founding a country based on that and then being stuck in that so you can never move forward. Modernization, you hear it today. Modernization, the modern man, the modern woman. Hegel then denounced the doctrine of separation of powers, the purpose of which is to contain the power of the state and protect the individual from the tyranny that typically arises from the centralization of power. He wrote, amongst current ideas must be mentioned that regarding the necessary division of the functions of the state, this is most important feature, which when taken in its true sense is rightly regarded as the guarantee of public freedom. But of this, those who think to speak out of inspiration and love neither know nor will know anything. For in it lies the element of determination through the way of reason. The principle of the separation of functions contains the essential element of difference, that is to say, of rationality. But as apprehended by the abstract understanding, it is false when it leads to the view that these several functions are absolutely independent And it is one-sided when it is considered the relation of those functions to one another as negative and mutually limiting. So he's saying it's one thing to have separate forces fighting with each other for the purpose of moving towards this final solution. But it's quite another to have the separation of powers for the purpose of having separation of powers. So you can see. So despite his extensive argument about conscious freedom, what, what, what calls reason and spirituality, as the gentleman with calling said, a community of the whole egalitarianism, the ambiguity of the practical form of the final end, the eventual perfect state, and the condemnation of constitutional republicanism as disparate parts of the same organ devouring itself, Hegel finally revealed himself as a monarchist just as the left in this country ultimately reveals itself. You can name it as tyrannical. He said the legislative corresponds to universality and the executive to particularity, but the judicial is not the third element of the conception. The individuality uniting the other two lies beyond these spheres. The function of the prince as the subjectivity with which rests the final decision. Got that? Got that? Subjectivity, the 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 ultimate individual actualization rests with the prince. The function of the prince as the subjectivity with, with 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 rests the final decision. In this function the other two are brought into an individual unity. The legislature, the courts, brought into an individual unity with the prince. It is at once the culmination and beginning of the whole. This, he says, is constitutional monarchy. So, Hegel's final end is an all-knowing, all-powerful monarchy. Quote, "...the perfecting of the state into a constitutional monarchy is the work of the modern world, in which the substantive idea has attained the infinite form." This is the descent of the spirit of the world into itself the free perfection by virtue of which the idea sets loose from itself and its own elements and nothing but its own elements and makes them totalities all right yak 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 the point is the totality the spirit finally conforms into this princely figure and to the critics of monarchy I'm telling you, this is important. The vast majority of you have never been taught this. This is important. I know it's a lot to consume. I really do. So the to the critics of monarchy, Hegel wrote, the conception of monarch offers great difficulty to abstract reasoning. So you and I, we're stuck with abstract reasoning. You see, we the notion of God and unalienable rights and natural, that's well, that's fine. That's all this abstract, mythical mumbo-jumbo, but he's dealing with real science, and in the end, it's the monarchy, it's the prince, through which all of us attain our ultimate and realize our ultimate individuality, you see. The conception of monarch offers great difficulty to abstract reasoning and to reflective methods of the understanding. The understanding never gets beyond isolated determinations. You know, separation of power, blah, 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 from his point of view. He says, basically, he said, you don't progress from anything. You just talk about separation of powers and uh, unalienable God-given rights and natural law. He says, you know, that's fine and good for that period of time, but now you're stuck there. You're stuck in your Constitution. You're stuck in your Declaration. I'm showing you the way out. Marx does the same thing, somewhat differently. He doesn't believe in the prince, obviously. He substitutes the prince with the mob, if you will, in my opinion. Thus the dignity of the monarch is represented as something derivative not only in its form but also in its essential character, he says. If by the phrase sovereignty of the people it is to be understood a republic or more precisely democracy, all that is necessary has been said. So Hegel's talking about the previous denunciation of separation of powers, etc. Says, when a people is not a patriarchal, a patriarchal tribe, having passed from the primitive condition, which made the forms of aristocracy and democracy possible, it is represented not as in a willful and unorganized condition, but as a self-developed, truly organic totality. In such a people's sovereignty is the personality of the whole, And exists, too, in a reality which is proportionate to the conception, the person, of the monarch. Of the monarch. And so it brings you, unavoidably, to an examination of Karl Marx. Karl Marx, he was also a German philosopher. He studied Hegel's writings very, very carefully. So did his frequent partner, Frederick Engels. And Marxism's intellectual starting point is nearly indistinguishable from Hegel's. Marx also saw history as the past and the present washed away through the perfection of society. Marx argued, though, that Hegel's idealistic historicism and its emphasis on legal and political conditions failed to account sufficiently for the most important characteristic of historical progress, economics. But I'm not going to spend time getting into marks right now. That, for another day. But it's important that we do that other day. So again, you can understand Kamala Harris. And you can understand Chuck Schumer. And you can understand Elizabeth Warren. And you can understand Bernie Sanders. They are driving an agenda that is alien to our founding principles. It almost makes me smirk, if you will, on July 4th when at times I'll watch on TV what's going on in Washington, D.C., the beautiful PBS show, the patriotic show, and every now and then they'll show a liberal Democrat waving an American flag and I'm saying, do they even know what they're doing? Are they actually celebrating America's founding? Or are they celebrating where they've taken America? The contradictions in the mind of the left really remarkable. On the one hand, they dismiss the founding as that of white men with white privilege who own slaves. Then on the other, on July 4th, they're standing there waving an American flag. Well, which is it? You are proud of your country? And if you want to fundamentally transform it, I don't see how you can be so proud of it. I'll be right back. Mark in You know, uh, some of you may be thinking right now, why do we, what, what's with all this? And I will tell you what's with all this. And why I do my show and why and often I do it this way. I mentioned Isaiah Berlin, and he said to the effect, if you leave ideas and philosophy to the academics and the intellectuals, you will lose your liberty. You will lose your country. You see, for many of them, ladies and gentlemen, we are nothing more, nothing less than mice in a social experiment. You need to know what they're up to in order to do something about it. Take to the streets, do this, do that. Okay, for what? To do what? The battle of ideas still matter. When you see the talking points, or hear them, from the left, day in and day out on these cable shows, they don't miss a a step. Now, we're all supposed to support abolishing ICE. Before that, we were supposed to support Open borders. We're supposed to support national health care. Abortion on demand. On and on and on. They never stop. They press their agenda. Push, push, push. Doesn't matter how they get it. Whether it's the ballot box. Whether it's the bureaucracy. Whether it's the courts. Because they don't believe in constitutional republicanism. They believe in an ideology. And so the ends justify the means to the extent you were able to follow what I read, and I know I read a lot, and I read it fast, you can see how dismissive Hegel is of constitutionalism and republicanism. Marx is the same. Fundamental transformation. Under a constitution, you cannot have fundamental transformation unless you are fundamentally transforming the constitution. Now, I know Wikipedia won't mention any of this discussion. Instead, they They smear me. They character assassinate me because they allow leftists to get in there and edit and so forth. And I know when the left writes about this program, they just mention from time to time when I may bark something out and so forth and so on, as any human being would. But you know better. We get into these issues like nobody else, and we have to. And I write about these issues like nobody else because I have to. And we must understand what's taking place and what it's based on. Because it is taking place. You know what I'm sitting in right now? My forever favorite chair. I mean, I'm 60 years old and I'm sitting in my favorite chair. Favorite chair in 60 years. It's my ex-chair. And it's at my desk in the bunker. I have a photo of it up on my social sites. And it not only looks cool, I am telling you, you know, I had this slip disc and then, uh, and then it broke into a thousand pieces and I had to remove the L5, I think they called it. <clears throat> and I would sit here aching, sitting in one of these uh, office store chairs that I put together myself. And by the way, they never lasted. One of the arms would start cracking. They'd start squeaking. Mr. Producer would say, uh, I can hear you moving in your chair. This is a, not only a beautiful chair. I'm telling you, this is the most comfortable chair I have ever had. It is luxuriously comfortable. It molds to my body. Gives me ideal posture. And that, in turn, gives me more energy, better concentration, more productivity. Don't waste another day in that generic chair that you've been using. Get an X chair and feel the difference. In fact, if you own a small business, get them for the entire office and see how much your employees appreciate them and how productive they become as a result. Now, here's a special for my listeners. An X-Chair only advertises on my show. So go to xchairlevin.com right now and get $100 off. That's xchairlevin.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. one 1-844-4- 844 for X Chair, X Chair comes with a 30-day no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you go to xchairlevin.com right now and use code Levin Footrest, you'll get a free footrest too. All right, that's xchairlevin.com. Till the weekend begins, the government is closed, and life goes on. Have you noticed? We talk about this all the time. Just to alert you, the government will be closed tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday. And I think there's like nine federal holidays, and when that takes place, the government's closed for three days a week. And life goes on. Isn't that amazing? Now, if the government closed for the purpose of trying to cut spending or so forth, Then we're told all hell's going to break loose. But if it closes for Saturday, then everything's perfectly fine. We've been hearing a lot of talk lately about a civil war in this country. And Mr. Producer said, you know what, Mark? You've been talking about this non-shooting civil war for 10 years. I said, okay, prove it to me. Mr. Producer Rich So he spent part of the day, believe it or not, going through, dusting off the archives. And he could only get that back to May 22, 2009. But he said, you said it before that. Now, why am I mentioning this now? Because, again, constitutionalism is absolutely incompatible with progressivism. So let's check this out from May 22, 2009. Cut, one, go. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen. I was the first to say this, and it's been repeated since. We are involved in a silent, in terms of non-shooting, civil war in this country. We hold the certain values and beliefs, you and I, upon which this country was founded. And our adversaries do not. And you can hear it every time Obama gives a speech. You can hear it every time Pelosi and Reid speak. These are miserable people trying to do miserable things. And I will not be lectured to by backbenchers in this business or anybody else about how to speak about them or to them. Everything's on the line. Everything's at stake. This isn't a debating society. I'm not running for office. We all have our roles and our responsibilities as citizens. And this is mine. I'm back live because I came under attack for using this phrase. And I used it earlier than May 22nd, 2009. That's just as far back as we could go. So this, this silent, if you will, non-shooting civil war. And some columnists wrote about it two days ago. and they, Wow, he's right on. That guy, he's really figured out what's going on. Stick with us. Kirsten Gillibrand used to be a moderate Democrat when she was a member of the House... She was selected by Chuck Schumer to be a senator, and she's a radical leftist now. But she's not only that, she's a dummy. I mean, she is dumb. I'm sorry, did I say she's dumb? Am I allowed to say that? No, she is dumb. And uh, she's being interviewed by the dumbest of the Cuomos, Chris Cuomo, and that's saying something. And this was last night on CNN, the constipated news network, which is a dumb network. It's not even a news network. It's a freak show, a conga line of malcontents and miscreants. Of pseudo journalists.
0: Anyway, let's get started, shall we? Cut six, go. She's also got some positions that are even to the left of Bernie Sanders. She wants to get rid of ICE. Now, what are you going to do? Now, he's talking
1: about the brilliant 28-year-old... Democratic socialist who was just elected, who are all supposed to be celebrating as the future. Go ahead.
0: Do come into a majority and you have a significant number or at least an influence of people who have that kind of a position. Yeah,
3: Well, I agree with it. I don't think ICE today is working as intended. Or you think I you believe, should get rid of the agency? I believe that it has become a deportation force.
1: Oh, you're such an idiot. They trash the local cops and try and nationalize local police departments. They turn the military into a social engineering project. They want to eviscerate the Second Amendment so we can't even defend ourselves. Now they want to abolish ICE and put left wingers in courthouses from our towns to our counties to our states to the feds. These people are absolutely insane. Go ahead.
3: And I think you should separate the criminal justice from the immigration issues, and I think you should reimagine ICE under a new agency. We should
1: reimagine ICE from this airhead? How should we reimagine ICE? You know what I want to abolish? I want to abolish the Democrat Party. I want to abolish the IRS. I want to abolish Obamacare. I want to abolish things that are really detrimental to the country. ICE? Unless you're an illegal alien on the run, why would you have a problem with ICE? Unless you're here illegally, unless you're committing crimes here, and you come from overseas, why would you be opposed to ICE? She's not opposed to prison guards, is she? She's not opposed to prison wardens, is she? Well, you know, they have as their job to watch people who are locked up and who are separated from their children, and we don't like that. So we should abolish prison guards, too. What an airhead. What an
3: idiot. Go ahead. Our mission and take those two missions out. And so we believe that we should protect families that need our help, and that is not what ICE is doing today.
1: And what a rambling buffoon. We should protect families that need our help. ICE is a law enforcement entity, the second biggest in the federal government. They're not there to protect families who need our help. and we got to protect families that need our help. You're supposed to secure the border and remove those who aren't supposed to be here. Why is that so controversial? Why is that such a big deal? We, we have to abolish ICE. Then we have Bill DeCameo. And we all, of course, want to follow Bill DeCameo right off the edge of the cliff. And, of course, he's on New York pubic radio. I mean, public radio. They all sound like a bunch of parrots. We should abolish ICE. We should abolish ICE. Cut seven, go. Would you like to join the call to abolish ICE, or have you already? Well, and, by the way, there's your great uh, 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 national pubic radio right there, New York pubic uh, you want to abolish ICE? No, I want to abolish you and pubic radio. Why do we have pubic radio? Why do we have government radio? We don't need government radio. You got radio everywhere. You got shows everywhere. You got over 50 stations in New York City. We're going to have public radio. Why? And so we can ask stupid questions and have a stupid voice. Go ahead.
6: I think, um... Every country needs some kind of sensible, transparent immigration uh, regulation. There's no question about that. You need some kind of agency to deal with immigration, but ICE is not that. ICE has proven it can't be that. ICE is time. Why?
1: Why has ICE proven it can't be that? What has ICE done? How has ICE broken? The politicians are broken. But why? Why is ICE a problem? Because it's the new Halliburton, that's why. How, remember that? You really wanted to get under the skin of a liberal, and say Halliburton.
6: Halliburton. Oh my God, it, 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 Halliburton. Go ahead. Is broken. Uh, it has been sent. Ice has been sent on a very negative device. It, you notice
1: they're never specific. It's broken. Uh, we need to separate the uh, you know, the justice part from the uh, from the law enforcement part and. Uh, we need to reimage, uh, you know, reimage ICE, and uh, we're going to do something better here. Uh, it is divisive and negative. Okay, what are you talking about? Go ahead.
6: And it cannot function the way it is. So I think uh, that Ms. Ocasio Cortez is right. We should abolish ICE. He we- thinks
1: that Ms. Ocasio Cortez is right, the 28 year old democratic socialist. Well, why wouldn't he? Because he's a commie. So we're all going to follow the Democrat Socialists and the Communists, right? That's right. And now the Democrat Party has moved into that camp with uh, Gillibrand. Go ahead. Something better, something better. Ah, shut up, you idiot. Can't stand you and never could. Now, and if I mispronounce the name, I apologize, but Pramila Jayapal, is that right, Mr. Producer? Something like that. A Democrat from Washington State. Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal. Let's see what she has to say. She's on with Wolf Blitzer. Cut eight, go. By the way, he's still with us? Wolf Blitzer's still around? I I mean, I just assumed. Anyway, go ahead.
3: Do you believe, Congresswoman, that ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, should be abolished? So stop.
1: You notice, you see all the leading questions. Now the media are into it. Let's abolish ICE, yes.
0: That's that's right.
1: It's abolish ICE, and we'll put a question mark behind it. Abolish ICE. I mean, do you believe it should be abolished? Now, they know that this congresswoman is an idiot. They know that the uh, uh, cameo is a cameo. They know Gillibrand is, a, uh, is a, uh, a, a hack who will do anything to get the nomination for President of the United States. Can you imagine? And now we care what Pramila Jayapal has to say. Go ahead
2: and more democrats who are specifically calling for that well i have been working on immigration issues for 20 years and the enforcement functions which need to be here in a country as ours we do have immigration laws they do need to be enforced but now listen to
1: these idiots you know it needs to be enforced a country as ours Uh, we have immigration laws they need to be enforced but we have immigration laws they're broken they shouldn't be enforced ICE needs to be about. but well, of course, we need to protect the border and the American people. Go ahead. Functions
2: Don't need to be in an agency that has become a rogue agency.
1: ICE is not a rogue agency. ICE is not a rogue agency. Those agents do what they're told. What's rogue is Congress. What's rogue is the Supreme Court. What's rogue is this damn party. The Democrat Party. We're going to run around talking about abolishing things. We should abolish the Democrat Party. What the hell good is it? Go ahead. literally has no accountability to... Ah, shut up, you idiot. Of course it has accountability. It literally has no accountability whatsoever. We must abolish ICE. Because the left-wing kooks and goons in my party, the base that I must have, To be a member of the House of Representatives. They insist that we get rid of ICE. Like Osirio. What is her name? Ocasio-Cortez says. Now she's the the great Ocasio-Cortez. Three days ago, nobody ever heard of her. She works for Bernie Sanders. She's 28 years old. Uh, She gets 16,712 votes or whatever it is. Wow, what an upset. The whole country should move in her direction now. You've got precincts in this country that get 16,000 votes. No, it's an earthquake. You don't understand. It's an earthquake. Who is she? What do you mean, who is she? And so they celebrate her like they did Jim Comey six weeks ago. She's everywhere. And before Comey, like the kook uh, psychologist from Yale, she was everywhere. And before the kook psychologist from uh, Yale... We had the kooka uh, phony writer, Michael Wolf. He was everywhere. Now she's everywhere. Then we had Stormy Daniels. She was everywhere. And we had her slip and fall porno lawyer. He was everywhere. Now, I don't know about you folks, but when Primala Jayapal speaks, everybody listens. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Republican establishment is. There's a piece at Breitbart.com. GOP Senate Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith voted for Hillary Clinton in 2008. Now I want you to listen to this. This is Mississippi. If you can't get a conservative senator out of Mississippi, where the hell are you going to get one? A previous leader of the Democratic Party confirmed Thursday that Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican Mississippi, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2008, Democratic presidential primary. Ricky Cole, the previous leader of the Mississippi Democrat Party, confirmed in a Facebook comment on Thursday, Cindy was for Hillary in 2008. He wrote in a Facebook comment on Thursday night, Cindy Hyde-Smith urged more women to run for office when asked about Hillary Clinton becoming the first woman nominated for a major political party in 2016. We're always supporting women, Hyde-Smith told the Clarion-Ledger. We want to promote women. I think women make great leaders. The right one would do the right job. So there we are, voting based on genitalia. In any event, Cole's revelation directly contradicts Hyde-Smith's denial that she did not vote for either Democrat candidate in 2008. Hyde-Smith told the Weekly Standard, you can leave a ballot blank, or you can vote for the third or fourth person on there that nobody knows, because I assure you that I didn't vote for either. That is just honestly the 100% truth. It's probably a no-name, but I still can't remember who the no-name was. Are you kidding me? But it certainly wasn't either one of them, because you have so many folks who just, you know, their names on the ballot, or you can have a write-in. That was, gosh, 10 years ago, and I have no idea what the name was. You don't have any idea who you voted for for president in 2008? Because there's a lot of names on the ballot? Anyone believe that? The junior Republican senator from Mississippi, how'd she become the senator? I'll get to that in a minute. Served as a state senator for three terms and then switched to the Republican Party in 2010 before running for statewide office in 2011. Before her service in the state Senate, Hyde-Smith worked as a lobbyist in D.C. during the Clinton administration. Tanner Watson, the spokesman for U.S. Senate conservative and populist candidate Chris McDaniel, sent in a press release today. No one should be surprised that Cindy Hyde-Smith voted for Hillary Clinton. She voted exclusively in Democratic primaries before opportunistically switching parties to run for statewide office in 2011. Why wouldn't she have voted for Hillary? Thankfully, Mississippians have an opportunity to right this wrong in November by electing Chris McDaniel, the only lifelong Republican and true conservative in the race. Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant chose to appoint Senator Hyde-Smith in March Despite warnings from the White House that President Trump would not endorse or campaign for her to replace retiring Senator Thad Cochran during the November special election. Remember how we got Cochran? That was a uh, Mitch McConnell deal there. And back then, uh, Cochran wasn't up to being uh, health-wise or mentally to being a senator. It didn't matter. McConnell reaches into these Senate races, and people should reject whoever McConnell endorses. White House sources have argued that her former Democrat Party affiliation would lead to a loss in November. Until Mississippi Governor Bryant's appointment, Mississippi State Senator Chris McDaniel was the only Republican in the race for the U.S. Senate. The way it works there is the top two are the ultimate nominees, and then those two are the runoff candidates. McDaniel warned in a Breitbart News Sunday interview in March that if the governor made a special appointment, it would lead to a bloodbath in November's special election. So... Uh, you have this liberal who will be a Susan Collins, Maine liberal, a Lisa Murkowski, Alaska liberal out of Mississippi. I don't know what the hell the governor of Mississippi was thinking other than he has a hate on for Chris uh, McDaniels. Uh, and there we are, Mississippi. They screwed up Alabama. They're about to screw up Mississippi. I'm going to take a very close look at this race and see if there's anything I should do behind the microphone. I'll be right back.
0: Blasting conservative fire. The Mark
1: LeVen Show. Call in now at 877-381-3811. There is a... Uh judge on the D.C. circuit by the name of Brett Kavanaugh and I see that Leonard Leo, uh, who is one of the top dogs of the Federalist Society, is pushing him very, very hard. Now I must tell you uh, in the last few hours I've heard many good things about him. Uh, Many good things about him. I know Bill Pryor as well. He is on the 11th Circuit comes out of Alabama I know him personally and I can tell you he is superb I don't know why he's not getting enough attention but a few days back I endorsed Mike Lee and I endorsed based on my knowledge of the candidates and I know Mike Lee I've become friendly with Mike Lee I've read his books I know he was an outstanding clerk to Associate Justice Sam Alito And his family is filled with experts on the Constitution. His brother is on the Utah Supreme Court. And his father was Solicitor General, the first one under Ronald Reagan. And I don't think there's any doubt that Mike Lee would be a constitutionalist for 30 years on the bench. We wouldn't have to worry at all. So uh, there's a number of good candidates. Grudner on the Eighth Circuit is outstanding as well. Hardiman in Pennsylvania, very solid. Uh, and uh, Rick Santorum has been promoting him very, very strongly. And there are others. Uh, but it's not like I have influence over the president. It's just that I would like to see Mike Lee on the Supreme Court. And there's others. If the president nominates, I could certainly get behind them as well. You know, the president could nominate Anybody. And the Democrats would fight it. So he might as well do the very best he can. Now, as for a concern that we would lose Mike Lee's seat, that's an impossibility. It's Utah. Utah's the most Republican state in the Union. Maybe it's Idaho, but it's one of the two. Got a Republican governor. So I don't think you'd have a problem there. It wouldn't be like the Alabama situation. If Mitch McConnell stays the hell out of it, it'll work out just fine. But Mitch can't help himself, he's a power hungry uh, old fellow. And uh, by the way, you should, you should, and I'm not going to tell you these are confidences when people contact me. They want to lobby me on behalf of Mitch McConnell. Tell me he's not as bad as I think. Like I'm four years old and I can't see and hear and read what I do on my own. He's worse, probably. I don't want to hear from these people. Like they're going to persuade me that my eyes don't see what they see and my ears don't hear what they hear. The disaster. Well, you know, he's going to get through this judge uh, for the justice. and Well, he should. That's his job. Meanwhile, the debt is higher than it's ever been, and it's completely out of control. Nobody talks about that but me. All right. I wanted to let all the fans of Levin TV out there to know about a special offer we have going on right now. And by the way, all the fans of this radio show. We wanted to make it a little bit easier for all of our subscribers and our soon-to-be subscribers, and I hope that's you, and our biggest fans, to get the biggest pricing possible, the best pricing possible, on Levin TV and the rest of the CRTV network. And by the way, the summertime's the perfect time to do it. You can watch my show or all these shows on your handheld device, your Android, your iPhone, and so forth. You can watch it while you're on the beach or at the swimming pool or hiking. I don't hike, but you you, you get the point. Now, here's what we did. We came up with our best offer yet. Now you can get a three-year subscription to CRTV for only $199. That comes to $5.53 a month. That's one Happy Meal. And this Happy Meal goes on for a month at $5.53 a month if you get the $199 three-year deal. Now, if you've been a fan of my show for a while now, you know we're in this for the long haul, and we hope you will be too. There's no other place online where you get the truth, where you get all kinds of wonderful conservative personalities, and, uh, and it's very entertaining. It's a lot of fun and informative and unfiltered and uncensored. Give us a call right now at 844-LEVIN-TV, 844-LEVIN-TV. Mention this ad. And you'll get three years of CRTV for only $5.53 a month, the equivalent of that. Setup is quick. It's easy. Don't be intimidated. We hold your hand and walk you right through it. And you'll be ready to watch in five minutes. Give us a call at 844-LEVIN-TV and we'll get you set up. That's 844-LEVIN-TV. Now, we have a wonderful Life, Liberty, and Levin on Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern. You wouldn't know it if you're watching Fox, by the way. I never see a commercial for my show on Fox. Never. What's the show on at 8? Objectified or something or other? Over and over and over again a commercial for the 8 p.m. Sunday show. I don't ever see a commercial for my show. I don't know what. Is it because I'm on radio and I talk about it to millions and millions of my radio fans or I post it on my social sites? I, I don't get it, but it doesn't matter. You know who my guest is Sunday. Sean Hannity. I'm going to spend an hour with Sean Hannity. You're going to learn things you never knew about Sean Hannity. You're going to see him as a, in, in, his, in his personal way. And uh, he was very nervous when he was coming on the show. Very nervous. Uh, because he's not used to an interview. He's used to doing the interview. But we have a lot of fun. I've known him, what, since 1998? What is that, 20 years? Maybe longer? And uh, he was very excited about doing it. You know, there's some folks out there who really aren't even interested in it. So that's fine. But he absolutely was. So I think you're going to enjoy it. So please mark it down. It is Sunday. If if I don't tell you, you're not going to hear about it. If you're watching Fox, you're not going to even know about it. Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. It's a wonderful way to wrap up your Sunday. Many of you are going to be traveling at the, uh, the weekend and the front end of the week for July 4th. Some will be on July 4th and the next weekend. But wherever you are, it is a, uh, it's kind of a wonderful way to uh, to cap off your weekend and your Sunday. As I say, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. I hope you'll join us. Let's take a call. Shall we take a call? I think we shall. Danny, los angeles california the great k r l a eight seventy the answer we do I love our affiliate k r l a out there go right ahead
4: oh Mark, thank you so much for taking my call.'m a long listener first time caller and uh i'm I'm really happy to be called upon on this particular show where you got a little philosophical before uh, I'm a lifetime resident of California and my point to you and I just to whoever's listening is I feel that part of the issue that we have today is my personal belief that I thought about for a long time. I feel that progress itself, progressivism and progress is a myth. And it has been, it, w- living in California, people have grown up at a certain point in time, we're both, you know, boomers or whatever, grew up in a certain era. And I think that people now, especially out here, there's a lot of uh, what you would call dissonance between they, 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 nobody would ever say, oh, I'm not a progressive or whatever. And I do this because I, all my friends are all progressives and you point things out to them and they cannot reconcile their own mind with Whatever the progressive, uh, party line is today, because it really does go against what a lot of them believe. I think this is why you had a guy who nobody's even heard of, uh, in California, John Cox. I'd never heard of him. Now he, he ends up coming in second in this rogue primary. What does that tell you? Uh, I think there's, uh, it, it just, I think that people who consider themselves to be progressives have not even really examined what that means because I think historically it really means uh, nothing good, nothing good. You know, All right, my I mean,
1: friend, I, I think you're right on. I appreciate your call very much. Pete, Oakley, California, the great KSFO. Go right ahead.
6: Hey, thank you, Mark, for taking my call. By the way, I think today's topic and and your little dissertation that you gave regarding— uh, Hegel is maybe the best i've heard you um, wow, thanks so I appreciate it very much um, y- you know uh, I-, I wanted to talk a little bit about Hegel and Kant emmanuel Kant really uh, was was the background for Hegel mm-hmm. and then some of uh some We're of gonna we 're not going to have know. enough
1: time where I can tell we 've got two minutes, so do your best
6: okay i 'll do my best but but uh w- what we've you know what we've got is not just being the antithesis of what our American society is, but also morals, um, which is really the basis, I believe, of our Constitution. Um, uh, you know, for the individual, uh, uh, Hegel wrote, pure reason is uh, incapable of any limitation, is the deity itself. And, and he, he had the old thesis antithesis, you know, and and basically showed that there was... In his thinking no absolute truths and no absolute uh morals, and you wonder if he believed his idea was absolutely true. Uh but but I really think it goes deeper, it touches every aspect of our society. I wrote a little bit about this regarding uh
1: All right, uh, Mr. Producer Sangma here, we gotta go. Listen, call next week, Pete. I can tell you're uh you're very well um uh educated on this subject i'd love to hear more of what you have to say but i have to roll i apologize i'm not trying to be rude how many of you have an additional five thousand bucks sitting around anybody i didn't think so know yeah, but, but you're gonna need it if your hvac system burns out because you don't change your filters those would be your air filters i know you think i'm being melodramatic but if you saw how bad this allergy season has been all that junk that doesn't wind up in your lungs which is bad enough of course is in your home's HVAC filters. Plus, it's getting hot outside and your system's working harder and harder. And if you don't have clean filters, you understand how it works. The air is no place to go. Spend 15 or 20 bucks, save your lungs and your HVAC system with fresh filters for my friends at FilterBuy. America's leading provider of HVAC filters for homes and small businesses. You know, they carry over 600 sizes and if you need to customize your filter they can do that for you too plus they ship for free within 24 hours and if that isn't enough they're manufactured right here in america so there's no reason not to use them and they're priced very well and you can set up auto delivery it just makes life easier so your filters come on a schedule and then you know to swap out the old and put in the new and by the way if you do that you'll save five percent and additionally you extend the life of your system it's getting hotter outside. The last thing you need is a busted HVAC system on top of all the allergies. And you can see these trucks going all over the place with HVAC on there, painted on the other sides. You don't want to have to do that. Save time, save money, breathe better with FilterBuy.com. I know I do. That's FilterBuy.com, FilterBuy.com. And tell them Mark sent you. We'll be right back.
5: Mark Lovin'.
1: Let's see. Can I slip in one more call? I think I can. Hold on here. Got to pull it up. Let's go to George Springfield, Virginia, the great WMAL. Go. Hi, Mark. Uh, Oliver
4: Wendell Holmes, Jr. I think he, the New England pragmatists, the avenue that brought Hegelianism into the and in German transcendental thought into the American bloodstream. We don't recognize it. What you're talking about isn't foreign. We've just accepted it under a different name called pragmatism. Landscape came from a book called The Metaphysical Club, but uh, you change the, the principles, you change the values, you change the meaning, meaning of words. You don't read law like Lincoln did with plain words. You you, you buried it and twisted it all in a knot, all for the idea of good, but it doesn't come out that way. And if that fits in with your thesis, that was my contribution
1: to you tonight. Well, it's very good. All right, my friend, thank you for your call. Well, this show, I feel, was a good show. There's sometimes I. A- When I'm done this show, I'm a little down. I don't think I've done my best, even though I try to do my best in every show. Maybe I'm just entertaining myself and 12 other people. You don't know. But I do think it's important to lay this case out. What we're dealing with, who they are, what their backgrounds are, and why it is that they sound so screwy. And why it is they don't defend our principles. Because they don't believe in our principles. They don't believe in our principles. They're very destructive of this society. And they use the Constitution, when they can, to advance their ideology. But in truth, they don't believe in the Constitution. Well, ladies and gentlemen, every Friday, in your honor, America... Over the weekend begins right now. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, and ICE. Good night, Spritey. Good night, Griffey. Good night, Pepsi. Good night, Smoky. Good night, Zelda. Get Al Qaeda, get Hezbollah, get Hamas, get the Taliban, get ISIS, get all those subhuman bastards. And don't forget, Life, Liberty, and Levin, 10 p.m. Eastern Sunday. I'll see you then. God bless. Have a great weekend.